Welcome to a new episode of What Really Happened, produced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewertz, and Cadence 13. Now, our show is only as good as our listeners. Y'all fact-check me, provide new insight, give your opinions. And to become a contributor, simply go to jenkspod.com slash contributors or call 413-471-2975. Thank you for being a listener and a voice for the podcast. In recent years, the world has been quite enchanted by royal weddings. An estimated 3.5 billion people watched Prince William and Kate tie the knot. About 2 billion watched Prince Harry and Meghan Merkel. Nothing like a royal wedding. Meanwhile, here in the United States, we have a president with historically low approval ratings. And when he tries holding hands with his wife, she slaps that hand away. Combining these two factors, our interest in royals during a time of a, statistically speaking, dislike president, got me thinking. It brought me to a time about two and a half years ago, when I stumbled upon a king. I was reading online about King John of England. While both despotic and evil, he also signed the Magna Carta. There are books, films, and exhibitions documenting his reign. But... I started finding cracks in his story which made no sense given he's so well documented. I pursued a bit more online and realized I'd hit the wrong hyperlink and had been attempting to read up on another king, King John II of France. I opted to continue searching for more detail on John II of France, who also goes by King John the Good, a nickname for him I'll be using throughout this episode. But I really couldn't find much on the good, While there are TV shows on the royals, documentaries on princesses, textbooks and academic papers on kings and queens from around the world and throughout time, for John II, a.k.a. The Good, there seemed to be a hardly-sourced Wikipedia page. And I'm not talking about the king of a relatively small country. I'm talking about a king of France, a king who ruled during the Hundred Years' War, one of the longest and most famous wars between two of the most well-documented and powerful nations this world has ever known. And John the Good ruled from 1350 to 1364, so he wasn't scaramoochied. He actually served for nearly 15 years. So his decisions had important ramifications. There was a lot at stake. But I kept finding nothing, nothing new, nothing thorough on the king's life. So I called people from around the world, international best-selling authors, to local historians, to experts in medieval history, and they all came back with a similar answer. They knew of the good, but couldn't speak with any real authority on his reign. The very basics of John II's life that I did discover seemed hard to believe, and if true, suggested that John II was a disastrous king. Early on in his rule, he went to war with the British. And in his first battle as king, although his army had twice as many soldiers, he led his country to a resounding loss. In fact, John the Good was taken prisoner and held in captivity for four years in England. But bizarrely, he didn't rot in enemy territory. He wasn't shackled. No, John the Good, according to records at least, had a blast. He had multiple homes, took up astrology, and held parades around England for himself. Apparently, he finally negotiated a deal to return to France, and when he returned home, only to see the disaster that it was, 
he did something that astonished his people. He announced he was going to turn himself back in as a prisoner. So off he went, back to England, taking five sailboats of goods with him, not including the one sailboat he had just for his wine. John II never returned to France and eventually died in England, where a glorious funeral was held. But more information on John II isn't easy to come by. Could all of this be true? I've continued scrounging for more information, and during my three-year process, I've been devoted to three simple questions. One, is King John II of France, aka the good, the worst king of all time, or if not arguably one of the worst kings of all time? John II seemingly abandoned his country to not just any country, but to his nation's biggest opponent. And in the midst of a war? I mean, can can you imagine if a, an American president was actually, I don't know, working for the Russians? And my second question, perhaps more lighthearted, if John the Good was so bad, why was he called the Good? And third, and truly the goal of my mission, has John II's story been lost in history? And if so, why? Did it really take my mistaking John II for another king to get to the bottom of sorting out his real story? To my fellow peasants and our beloved knights and nobles, and to my producer, King Dwayne Johnson, I ask, what in the name of all that is royal really happened? This is going to be bloody fun. When I say I had trouble finding anything on John II, I really mean it. I can't say this is a fact, but... In my exhaustive research, there really are only two books that talk about John II in any great length, and those books are about the history of France, one from 1945 and another from 1967. So they kind of had to mention him. Luckily, getting a translation isn't too hard, and so what has been documented isn't pretty. In the book History of France by Louis-Pierre and Quittel, and I'll say this now, I'm going to botch some of these French names, I'm doing my best, wrote that, quote, the reign of King John is one of history's most disastrous. Other more simple aspects of John II that are documented seem wrapped in mystery or are contradictions. For instance, his nickname, King John the Good, is what he goes by, but why he's called the Good is up for debate. He doesn't seem to have done much good. And if anything, it's kind of a lousy name. Prince John II of Portugal went by Prince Perfect. Or even on the opposite side of the spectrum, there's the ominous Alexander the Terrible. Even John the Good's son, Charles, would be known as King Charles the Wise. But John? No. He was simply good. Kind of like calling him, I don't know, you know, King John the, eh, decent? Says Michael Jones, who wrote the new and ripping book, The Black Prince, England's greatest medieval warrior. I know some of these um, nicknames, these appellations are quite funny. Yeah. Just give you an example. In the early 15th century, there were two Dukes of Burgundy called respectively John the Fearless and Philip the Good. John the Fearless was probably one of the most paranoid kind of 
aristocrats in existence, (laughs) and his son, Philip the Good, misbehaves so much that he fired so many bastards that they're actually giving a given a pecking order at court so his favorite bastard would actually be announced in court as the great bastard <laughs> by, by 15th century standards he called a great bastard was actually a great mark of honor oh, really? more on that later another bizarre detail is the goods looks i bring this up because One historian indicated that at least the good had looks on his side. He was handsome. I realized this really isn't based in fact because the good was the first ever Western European medieval monarch to have a portrait made of him. It didn't take long for me to call BS on this as obviously whatever the good approved would portray him as good looking. Or as the same historian ended up saying, true, a bit of medieval photoshopping. Since I couldn't find any experts on John II, I figured I'd reach out to other historians or authors who, although maybe didn't write a book on John II, knew enough about this time period or the Hundred Years' War to provide some detail about the king. The response was lopsided. Jonas Bach, Department of Medieval Studies at Central European University in Budapest. Craig Taylor, Fellow of the Society in History in France and the Royal Historical Society. Ann Curry, nope, not that Ann Curry, Dean and Professor of Medieval History at University of Southampton, to name a few, they all, very politely might I add, said they didn't know enough about the good, at least to speak with any authority on the man. Historians, really good historians, are aware of what they know and what they don't know. Nearly all of them did say there was one historian, by the name of Neil Murphy, who may know something but I couldn't track him down, or more precisely, he didn't respond to my emails. If anything, I thought this was right on brand. Of course, I couldn't reach the one guy who knew anything about the good. So I took a step back to learn more about the time period, and maybe that allowed me to find out more about John II. This started with understanding the war that he played a big role in, the Hundred Years' War. Now, it's 1328, 700 or so years ago. King Charles IV of France dies. Normally, after a king dies, it'd be his son that takes over. But Charles IV of France doesn't have a son, and so the new king will be whomever is the closest male relative to Charles IV. Now, as you may know, there's quite a bit of inbreeding during these times. Kings and queens and princes and princesses and royalty at large marry between countries, even if they're relatives, so that their children stay within the same class system. And the closest male relative to the recently deceased King Charles IV of France is the King of England, Edward III. So just to be clear, the next in line to be King of France is the King of England. Now, the French obviously aren't going to abide by this, and thus Philip VI, otherwise known as Philip the Fortunate, awesome name, is to be the next king, done deal. But King Edward III of England, believing he should technically also now be the King of France, says, screw this, I'm actually next in line to be King of France. He doesn't think Philip the Fortunate has the right to anything. Why does King Edward III care? Well, there's pride, sure. And then there's land, which means power. And if King Edward III is in control of France, then he's in control of most of Western Europe. More control and more land means more money. And you always follow the money. 
So three years after the death of King Charles IV of France, Edward has the chutzpah, or maybe the right, to declare himself King of France. But the French won't have it. So Edward III declares war on France. This, what I just said, is a simplified account of how the Hundred Years' War begins. There are several other moving parts, but without question, a main reason is the King of England thinks he should also be the King of France. If only Charles IV had a son, and this would all have been fine. Or if women were in charge, or just one of the two. Philip the Fortunate dies early on in the war. Again, these names make no sense. And thus, it's left to Philip's son to take over. This son is King John II, a.k.a. John the Good. I thought understanding John's role in this war could be a way to understand who he was. And so I zoomed in on the first battle he led, called the Battle of Poitiers. During this battle, it was the Good and his French army versus the British, who were led by Edward III's son, whose name is Edward of Woodstock, whom history has coined the Black Prince. Now that's a nickname. The Black Prince is vital to this story. King Edward III, still alive and well, believed in his son and gave him great powers during the war. And as it turns out, the Black Prince is well documented. So I've spent time reading as much as I can on the Black Prince, who I'll also call BP, in hopes the more I read up on him, the more I'd find out about his encounters with the good, and ultimately maybe this would result in more information on exactly who the good was. Not only that, but if I could learn about how both fought in the battle, I'd get an understanding as to whether the good really was such a terrible king. With regards to the Black Prince, it didn't take long to realize that the prince is a highly caffeinated, badass, vindictive, intuitive, and smart leader who has similarities to Mel Gibson, albeit a younger Mel Gibson, in Braveheart. There's some debate as to why his nickname is the Black Prince, but many believe it's because he is quite simply somebody you don't want to mess with. He wouldn't just find and destroy his enemies, he then pillaged the entire village. And he did this all over Western Europe. You're a fruitful town one day, but then the black cloud, the black prince arrives, and not only is your town destroyed, but everyone is dead. As Reuben in Ocean's Eleven says to the two robbers, played by George Clooney and Brad Pitt, this sort of thing used to be civilized. You'd hit a guy, he'd whack you, done. But with Benedict, in this case the black prince, at the end of this, he'd better not know you're involved, not know your names, or think you're dead, because he'll kill you, and then he'll go to work on you. Many believe it was Shakespeare who gave Edward of Woodstock this nickname, the Black Prince. And that is pretty cool, to have your nickname come from Shakespeare himself. Unlike the good, the Black Prince is featured in movies and books, including that of none other than William Shakespeare's Edward II, Richard II, and Henry V. And he's been depicted in theater productions and several films. Says Michael Jones, As a child, from the age of seven, he had his own sort of miniature suit of armor and this wasn't and a sword and these weren't just toys that he was training and he was trained up by his father Edward III to be a warrior. I've attempted comparing the two when they were young. When the Black Prince was 16 years old, he won with the help of his father, again Edward III, his first battle against the French at the Battle of Cressy. 
at 16 years old, John the Good's accomplishments seem non-existent. And I'm not trying to throw relentless shade at the Good, but, well, I'll put it this way. At 13 years old, the Good got married only because his father wanted his son to marry Bonnie of Bohemia. This marriage, which came with a treaty, yes, a treaty, not just a dowry, ensured that the French army would get 400 extra infantrymen as their country was becoming more fractured for a variety of reasons. But imagine that. Your dad marries you off to get an extra 400 soldiers. The Black Prince, on the other hand, marries at Windsor Castle when he's 31. And no, the Brits didn't request 400 extra soldiers in return. So after learning some of these basic facts, I tracked down David Green, author of a book, The Black Prince, and another riveting book, and I'm not being hyperbolic, it really is awesome, titled The Battle of Poitiers, 1356. This battle, again, the Battle of Poitiers, is crucial to understanding the good. David Green adds great value to my research because he's written an entire book on this battle. Here, from our conversation, he's talking about the Black Prince and his army leading up to the Battle of Poitiers and how BP is getting a feel for how tough this war may be. The campaign of the previous year in 1355 was this hugely destructive raid. They really hadn't done anything like this before. He rides from the Atlantic to the Mediterranean coast of France and back again, and in the course of it destroys something like 500 towns, villages, castles and other settlements. It's sort of socio-economic warfare on a huge scale. Not only does the Black Prince do all this sort of burning and levelling of castles, he also goes into tax collectors' houses. He brings along the guy who's basically his business manager. And they are trying to see precisely how much damage they're doing. So he's pillaging towns and then getting taking record too? Yeah. It's designed to undermine the French monarchy in a number of ways. So as the Battle of Poitiers between BP and the Good is about to begin, one thing is clear. The Black Prince has no chance. He knows it. He's got between seven and 8,000 soldiers, and John the Good has around 15,000 soldiers. Most scholars believe Black Prince wants to make a truce. One deal BP offers is that he'll give his baggage train, which is this wagon that follows an army with supplies and ammunition, to the Good, and he also says he won't invade France for at least seven years. Any one of those sharks from that Shark Tank show, I'm really sick of that show, would have taken the deal. It's an easy decision. But the good comes back with a startling response. Among other requests, he wants a hundred of the Black Prince's best knights to surrender. And here's the kicker. He wants the Black Prince to surrender as well. BP responds with some version of, yeah, that's not going to happen. And so the battle is set to commence. John the Good versus the Black Prince. Unless, of course, the Pope can do anything about it. So, as we know, the Black Prince is integral to this story. And with that, I want to introduce you to another prince, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Will Smith, who said the following, Too many people spend money they haven't earned to buy things they don't want to impress people they don't like. Will Smith, on money. 
And speaking of money, lots of people, for very good reason, find that the stock market can be intimidating. I know I can. It looks complicated. But have no fear. Robinhood is here. That was my own little rhyme. I'm pretty proud of. Robinhood is a smart and unique company. It's an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. It's also important to note that with Robinhood, there is no cost, no commission fees. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. Trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Also, Robinhood's design is really easy to understand. There are charts and market data. You can place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. The cool thing about it is that you can learn how to invest as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, and track favorite companies with personalized news feeds, custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at happened.robinhood.com. That's happened.robinhood.com. What really happened? Just the happened part. Happened.robinhood.com. The morning of the battle, the Pope, or really a cardinal, is trying to prevent this from going down. Again, these two nations fighting a war isn't really in the best interest of anyone. BP, knowing he's in a position of weakness, opts to begin the battle by retreating. Now, historians aren't sure, but BP may have been faking a retreat as a way to provoke the French. BP's thinking would be that the good and the French think the Brits are already giving up and they need to go in immediately for the kill. Whether it was a fake retreat or not, the Black Prince makes two pivotal and smart decisions. One, he divides his army into three divisions. And two, he positions his troops behind natural obstacles, hills and trees and other terrain to his advantage, making it tough to get to where his troops are. He makes it so difficult, in fact, that the French only have two routes to attack the Brits. For instance, one division of the French troops were forced to go uphill when attacking the British. As they did, BP's men let loose a rain of longbows, slaughtering the French. These longbows were integral for the Brits. On top of this, BP had trusted commanders in each of those three separate posts. Meanwhile, on John II's side, his top two lieutenants are arguing. One side of the argument is that they must attack, while the other lieutenant thinks that they should be patient and wait. If BP did in fact fake the retreat, it works. The French take the bait, as at least half the army charges towards the British, who are well protected and can rely on their longbows. At a certain point, the good and other soldiers, about 4,000 of them, get close to the British. But the good is facing an onslaught of arrows, an arrow storm, as David Green puts it and his troops start retreating. Although the British are outmaneuvering the French, there are still moments the Brits come close to losing. After all, they are outnumbered. And this is one of those moments in history when you realize the leaders of a nation really do change history. On this team, we fight for that itch. 
On this team, we tear ourselves and everyone else around us to pieces for that inch. We claw with our fingernails for that inch. Because we know when we add up all those inches, that's going to make the fucking difference between winning and losing. The third person I spoke to was someone the elite scholars around the world would call a badass historian, Peter Hoskins. Hoskins actually walked the same route the Black Prince did during his journey from England to France. So far as I know, he's the only one that's actually literally walked the route, documented the journey, and then wrote a book about it titled Following the Black Prince on the Road to Poitiers, 1355 to 1356. The Black Prince himself had a firm grasp of what was going on and, and a strategy or, or a tactical mind to be able to, to deal with it, but also that he was maintaining effectively, effective command and control. It's like his, his commanders, his soldiers, found something um, at Poitiers towards the end. They're all exhausted. And one, one captain just kind of laments, oh, God, that's it, we're completely lost. Mm. And somehow, from that exhaustion, they all summon um, tactics, resolve, the whole thing to turn the tables on the French. So the Black Prince uses um, his passion, his fire, to create a, a, a sense of brotherhood. The Black Prince had a gift for motivating um, his troops, uh, but much more than that, he was a very, very good motivator, but he also created an incredible sense of loyalty, a, a sense that everyone was in this together. When people are fighting in an army with him, when the going gets tough, rather than finding that extra reservoir of strength, on the French side, when the going gets tough, his noblemen get going. And there's, a, I think, a well-founded suspicion at Poitiers that partway through the battle, a number of noblemen who, who have never really kind of reconciled themselves to John the Good's actions decide, we're out of here. Throughout the battle, the Good has 17 knights from his personal guard dressed exactly like he is. The idea being that if and when the Brits got close, it'd be difficult for them to know who exactly was John the Good. Similar to when Saddam Hussein had all of those lookalikes. It seems like a simple, smart tactic, although, like Saddam, it didn't work out well for John II. Historians believe the battle lasted about two hours. In the end, none other than a Frenchman who had switched sides sees the Good and has him cornered. Sire, I am a knight of France. Yield yourself to me, and I will lead you to the Prince of Wales, a.k.a. the Black Prince. This moment of defeat has been chronicled in the French history books. J.B. Heinemann says that this is one of the, quote, great disasters in French history. Georges Minois says it would, quote, have been better for King John to have been killed at the battle rather than taken prisoner. This victory by the Black Prince can't be underestimated. Not only do the French now have the good, but a large number of high-ranking French nobles are also taken prisoner. It's also decided 
that it will cost the French 3 million francs for the king to return to his home country. Now, a franc back then is actually called something else, and it all gets a bit messy, but how much would this 3 million be in today's world? It's nearly impossible to really calculate. With the help of David Green and the National Archives in London, I can't believe I called them, where there is a historic currency calculator, it might be somewhere around 340 million American dollars. <laughs> I called them a few times. Again, to be clear, that's a guess. And the point is that France has close to no money. So actually paying back is unlikely, if not impossible. And thus, more than anything, this debt gives the British an upper hand in any and all negotiations. This is important. It's also a moral victory for the British. So John II of France, John the Good, is now an imprisoned king. By way of context, I think it's important to know what prior kings or queens did to other royals when they were captured. There isn't really a playbook per se. In Spain, rivals for the throne were butchered alive at dinner. The Vikings, several centuries before John II, performed on English kings. They'd captured what was called a blood eagle. The Vikings would rip open the rib cage and pull the lungs out to create a pair of wings while the victim was still alive. As one historian noted, this makes Game of Thrones look like child's play. So how did the Black Prince treat the good on the night of his capture? Well, the good isn't thrown into a cell, not shackled or tortured as one may expect during these dark ages. Nope. The good enjoys a five-star meal in a lavish red silk tent. At one point, BP even stops by to make sure everything's okay. So the Black Prince and his troops and John the Good and many of his captured soldiers take off to England. On the way, the celebratory dinners and other festivities continue. This all begins a very strange tale of the Good living a pretty great life in captivity. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. <laughs> Surprisingly, the Good enters London riding a gorgeous white horse. BP is showing unfathomable respect. The good is also treated to parades and feasts around England. In the book Barber and Barker, Tournaments, the author writes that the events they hold for the good are, quote, the most celebrated of the age. Sir John Chando said, quote, The French king's arrival in London sparked off a long period of dancing, hunting, hawking, feasting, and jousting. He added, the ladies, the damsels, old and young, and serving maids came to greet the royal party. Going into this, I thought perhaps because the good spent many years locked up, maybe it was a reason or could have contributed to him missing in the history books. But I was wrong because the good is royalty. And so there are detailed accounts, records, almost modern day Excel spreadsheets of what he was doing. According to the Pulitzer Prize winning author, Barbara W. Tuckman, who also wrote the incredible book, The Distant Mirror, quote, In France's miserable hour, John II's accounts show expenses for horses, dogs, and falcons, a chess set, an organ, a harp, a clock, venison, and whale meat from Bruges, and elaborate wardrobes. He maintained an astrologer and a king of minstrels with orchestra, held a cockfight, commissioned books with fine bindings, and sold horses. 
I also learned that when the good is held at the Tower of London, he has large windows constructed so he has a view. At a time when silk is expensive, John has his entire bedspread made of the fabric. Two of the most famous artists in France, Jean Costet and Gerard Dorlines, sail in to decorate John's rooms. Fine art is placed around the chambers, a special canopy is installed, East African chessboards made of ivory, expensive silverware, luxury goods like rubies and diamonds, and above all else, at least in terms of expense, are mechanical clocks, the good places in each of his rooms. When traveling from London to an estate in the countryside, yeah, he has multiple homes, the good brought 39,683 pounds of possessions. How much is nearly 40,000 pounds? It's about one-fourth as heavy as the space shuttle, or three times as heavy as one elephant. This does not include his wine, the most prized possession. That was shipped separately. Now, while the good is living the good life, what is going on in France? Jules Michelet, who is considered France's most vivid, if not most objective historian, says that in France's history, it is one of the most disturbing and demoralizing times. Don't forget, and this is amazing to think, the Black Plague is ripping through France while all of this is going on. And on top of this, the peasants revolt against the French leadership because, in many ways, the peasants are being taxed for what the good is spending. David Green, again the author of The Black Prince, England's greatest medieval warrior, says, John II's absence leads to a sort of vacuum of power uh, in France, and there's a major peasant revolt which takes place in 1358. Edward III, King of England, and father to the Black Prince, is getting what he thought he was owed all along from the very beginning of the war. Michael Jones makes a pivotal point here about the lasting impact this has on the war. Having the King of France in captivity really does for a period of time change the political dynamic of the war. It establishes Edward III as sort of the preeminent monarch in, in Western Europe. Now, to be fair, in terms of John II's treatment, the more I read about captivity of other royals, what John II experienced was certainly extravagant and unlike anything else, but it wasn't entirely unusual. I learned that the closest comparison to what happened to John II may be David II, King of Scotland, who also was held by the English from about 1346 to 1357. In fact, this means that for a brief period, Edward III of England actually held both David II and the Good in captivity at the same time. And like the Good, David II was also treated well. Certainly, according to historians, not as well as the good, but it does seem that there was a certain expectation royals would be decently treated. John II had a great deal of pride. Many have called it arrogance. And so he did expect to be treated well. He didn't believe a king of France, a reputable nation, would ever see the horror bestowed upon other kings in previous times. But... The more I read, the more it seems there are a few reasons Edward III and the Black Prince are taking care of their royal prisoners. While in captivity, there are negotiations for John II's release. But John II and the French don't have any negotiating power, and so deals keep falling through as they're totally lopsided in favor of the Brits. 
Finally, in 1360, after four years in captivity, the Treaty of Bretignies is signed, allowing for the goods return to France. There are many components to this treaty, but for the intentions of this story, there are three that I think are most worthy of note. One, three million francs must be paid. So when John II goes back to France, his main mission is to raise that three million. Second, John II agrees to give up a third of Western France, ensuring the Brits are the most powerful. And third, the goods own son, Prince Louis, and upwards of 50 noblemen have to turn themselves into the British and be held as ransom in England until this three million is collected. And so on October 30th, 1360, Prince Louis, John the Good's son, and the other noblemen sail off to England and turn themselves in. And the good finally returns to France, which, like we said, is a disaster zone. The peasant revolt has the country in turmoil and the Black Plague is savaging the country. John the Good's first wife was killed by the Black Plague before he had been taken captive, and he's again without a wife when he returns to France because his second wife also died while he was gone. Quite a welcome home party. What I couldn't understand was, if your country is broke on really a good day, how are you going to get three million crowns? According to Barbara Tuckman's book, again, A Distant Mirror, page 373, sales tax of 12 pence in the pound are levied on Paris to, quote, all persons capable of paying. Literally, that's what it says, all persons capable of paying. Jewish people are invited back under the condition they pay. The good even marries off or sells off his 12-year-old daughter Isabel to a Milan family for 600,000 gold florins. Thousands of rich Italians come to the wedding, which takes a while to get together as they're having to work around the Black Plague, but when they do, the Italians put on a show. Said Italian historian Matteo Villani, praised for his dedication to seek sources and decipher facts, quote, Who could imagine that the wearer of that crown should be reduced to such straits as virtually to sell his own flesh at an auction? But while raising the money in France, unbeknownst to the good, his son Louis does something the good would have never done. While in captivity in England, Louis goes rogue and escapes. Again, for my conversation with Michael Jones. Why did his son uh, escape captivity in England? I, I've heard he was, he was very much in love with his wife. I haven't been able to kind of pin that one down. Well, yeah, we'd probably have to ask him, and then he might not give us a straight answer. Uh, <laughs> Louis was uh, uh, a great warrior, would become a great warrior, and uh, he was impulsive also. And I think that, I mean, it's always nice to imagine things are done for love, and perhaps that mm. was part of it. In other words, or at least in my research, Louis isn't really agreeing with Dad's decision to forfeit so much to the British. Louis thinks he should be fighting for his homeland. But the good is embarrassed and outraged. His son doesn't honor the treaty, and so the good does something which shocks his people. He opts to do something that perhaps, perhaps, Shakespeare himself would have a tough time believing. Something that came up in my research is how John II of France 
didn't sleep well. Uh, he had sickness that he had to deal with throughout his life. And something that came along with that was difficulty sleeping. And boy, oh boy, do I wish he had a sleep number bed like I just got. Uh, I have to say, this is the wave of the future. It is a ideal bed. I never really thought I would say this, but it it is a smart bed. Uh, the new Sleep Number 360 smart bed helps everyone from parents to pro athletes that I like to think I am uh, improve their daily performance through proven quality sleep. My sleep number setting is 50. Uh, my partner's sleep number is nothing. Why do we always have to put that in the language here when we know I don't have a partner? So many couples, from what I understand, disagree on mattress firmness. Sleep number beds let you choose your ideal firmness on each side. I find that part exceptional. Uh, the new beds are so smart, they sense your every move and automatically adjust to you, keeping you sleeping comfortably throughout the night. It really is true. There's a world of difference. So come in during the fall sale and save $100 on the Queen Sleep Number 360 C2 Smart Bed, now only $899. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 550 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Visit sleepnumber.com slash podcast to find the one nearest you. As France is in peril, starving for a leader, the good can't believe his son left captivity in England. And so what does he do that Shakespeare himself would have a tough time believing? The good announces that he is voluntarily returning to captivity in England. The good's counsel tries to dissuade him from taking off, I mean, obviously, but he persists, citing reasons of good faith and honor. And so he sails off for England in the winter and leaves the impoverished citizens of France again without a king. They're stunned, and for good reason, can you imagine? Your country is in shambles and your leader decides to check out. When the good lands back in England, turning himself in as a prisoner, well, perhaps you can guess what happens. Hundreds, if not thousands of people await and celebrate his return. Edward III sends four knights to greet the good and escort him to an estate just outside of London. The good then stays at the Savoy Palace, the grandest townhouse in all of London during medieval times. King Edward then takes the good and the many remaining French hostages on an awesome hunting trip throughout the countryside. It is a return to the lifestyle of royal captivity. This continues for two years until 1364, when John II of France, John the Good, dies of natural causes. As if things weren't hard enough, the good dealt with myriad health issues throughout his life. Although he had vowed to destroy England, on the day of John's passing, the British mourned their beloved king of France. They didn't simply ship the good's body back to France. Nope. They held a service. And I really am sorry if it seems like I'm getting a kick out of this, but they don't just hold any old service. They have the funeral at St. Paul's Cathedral. Edward III, the king, and his wife and other royal members sit under a cloth of gold and wear clothing specially made for the ceremony. His body is then led through the city streets. 
The Good ultimately spent four years, four months, and nine days in captivity, about one-third of his reign in enemy territory. The not-so-good reign of John II was over. And what was the impact of both the battle and John II's capture? The Battle of Poitiers changes the way the French approach the war. They won't fight another set piece against the English for over 50 years. While England continues to believe that their king is a military leader, the French no longer believe their king needs to attend battles. They see their king more as a holy leader, important in war, but not necessarily important for the king to be there. Regardless, I remained unable to understand why John the Good is not documented particularly well in history books. Or, well, forget well-documented, just not documented. Sure, his captivity is, but that is through records the British took, or information gathered by reading up on the Black Prince's successes. As best-selling author Dan Jones says, quote, History is always written by the winners. When two cultures clash, the loser is obliterated and... The winner writes the history books, books which glorify their own cause and disparage the conquered foe. As Napoleon once said, what is history but a fable agreed upon? So in the last 10 months, I went back to where I had started this whole journey, to the library and the not-as-trustworthy World Wide Web. I exhaustively searched one last time for any books, articles, you name it, on John II. And... Almost magically, I found a textbook, or a book for academics, that was recently published. It is the first book, at least in English, that actually has John II's name in the title. Written by Neil Murphy, a professor at York University in England, it's called The Captivity of John II, 1356-1360. As the title suggests, it's not about John II's life, which I was really hoping for, but it is about his time in captivity— the time in which scholars have agreed the good was particularly pathetic. I counted 768 published primary and secondary sources in Neil's book. His work was clearly taxing. His first sentence in the book is, I incurred a number of debts during the course of researching and writing this book. So make no mistake, Neil is dedicated. Clearly, like me, he also had a very tough time finding the goods on the good. See what I just did there? And although his book is not the biography on this king that I've been seeking, something appears that I couldn't have imagined. Well, you know, frankly, as a storyteller, it was a welcome turn of events. Because Neil declares the good was perhaps not so bad. After the resounding conclusion I had formed, I realized my work was incomplete, and so I went off trying to find Neil. But I couldn't find him. Was he hiding? Realizing he made the mistake of his career by defending one of the worst kings of all time, he just wouldn't take part in an interview? Well, as it turns out, Neil had just had a child, congratulations Neil, and wasn't really checking emails as much, but when he did respond, he was up for an interview. I mean, he couldn't believe I read his book, much less read it twice, much less telling him that I, quote, fucking loved it. Neil defends so many of the good's actions, which we'll get to, that before even talking about the book, I had to, as humbly as possible, ask about Neil's approach. Was he trying to write a book to counter the narrative? Yeah. So did, did you know going into this that this that this would be the outcome, this sort of uh, this other narrative? 
No, not at all. I mean, this is just something that came, you know, through. This is one of the joys of research itself, of this type of archival research, is finding out something new or finding stuff that puts a different perspective on things. I'm always quite worried about people who go into a project having a defined idea of what they want to say, because it sort of means you can find the information to shape it around your narrative. Right. I think that sort of can be quite bad history sometimes, but a lot of yeah. it's done quite regularly. Um, yeah. But, you know, this here project, I'm saying, it's very much, I went into the project thinking, this man's the worst French king ever, you know, yeah. ever did live. And then you find information that actually, okay, well, maybe this suggests something to the contrary. It gives us a, a different understanding. I kind of regret asking the question, but the motivations of a writer is important. So what did I take away from Neil's book? One, this may sound obvious, but the value of chivalry can't be underestimated. It is a value that is part of every decision the nobles and kings make. So when the battle ends, manners really matter. As Barbara Tuckman notes, quote, more than a code of manners in war and love, chivalry was a moral system governing the whole of noble life. In terms of John going back to England, Neil points out, you know, logic would think, well, why would you voluntarily hand yourself back into captivity to your, your greatest enemy? Um, but again, this chivalric code, this knightly code, a warrior code, effectively, mm. about how to act in life sort of dictates how these people think. And I think that sometimes puts them in awe certainly with how you know, we might think today. Hmm. But actually, they think in you know, very, very different ways. And so for John II, this, the fact his son's escape, returned to France, is an absolute smear on his honour. You know, this chivalric code that he believes wholeheartedly in has now been, you know, attacked, you know, in the, in the mud by what the actions of his son. In fact... Neil says that John the Good and the Black Prince have a bit of a competition over who is more chivalrous. Why was BP treating the Good to such Wolfgang Puck-style delicious meals after battle? The Black Prince is trying to do is he's trying to sort of outdo John again. He's beaten him on the battlefield, and he's now trying to do him in this sort of this sort of court of manners. I've captured you, and it's in my power to treat you in this way. Neil says in his book, quote, Historians typically treat the Black Prince's actions as a straightforward gesture of honor towards the French king. Yet, this clever strategy allowed the Black Prince to focus his leading supporters' gaze on his greatest prize and highlight his chivalrous qualities. The second important component to Neil's book, the Black Prince's PR campaign, or his propaganda. Remember, the Black Prince is the eldest son of the King of England, sure, but he's not yet a king, and thus certainly not of the same status as John the Good. BP wants to let the world know he's aware of this. Remember the Good entering London on a white horse as if a hero? Neil says this, quote, raised the Black Prince's international profile because it was reported widely across Europe. This is picked up by contemporaries at the time who remark on the Black Prince as being, oh, this is a real mark of prince equality. So the Black Prince is ticking off each box to what makes a good king. And while the good is held captive, the Black Prince's father, Edward III, is also using the French king, this prized possession, as propaganda. Why have a king captive if you can't show him off? This helps Edward III's branding as the ruler of Western Europe. 
what the father and son duo are accomplishing for themselves, I think plays a large part in explaining France's disgust at John the Good, not necessarily at the time as they saw him as this divine leader and were more disgusted at the people around him, but certainly in the history books. Grand Chronique, the French monarchy's official history book, emphasizes John's love for hunting and chronicles these huge and expensive hunting expeditions the good would go on throughout the British countryside. Not in a good way. The book is showcasing classic John the Good, who many of us have come to pity. But Neil, again, argues it works both ways. It isn't just the British who are waging a PR campaign. There are reasons John II is living the good life in England and happy to have it on display. According to Neil, because the good is held captive, he has to find ways to still show he has power. And power means acting as if he is still living a respectable life while in captivity. Neil explains in his book that hunting is one of the best ways for late medieval nobles to display their social status. And so the hunting trips were certainly fun for the good, but also served a PR purpose. But I still wasn't totally convinced of what Neil was saying. There are just some facts about John's life that really make him look like a fairly awful leader. Uh, one thing that is just, it's, it's you know, shocking. Uh, he, has, he, he has six ships when he returns to England. Uh, one is for wine alone. I mean, yeah. when, when reading that, <laughs> it's, it's so hard to, that it, it sounds so absurd that peasants and, and others must have been, I mean, they're, they're, they're burning, they're dying, they're, you know, I'm, you would have thought there would be, I don't know, he, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss for words that they would have tried to execute him or, or something, I have no idea. Yeah, I, I suppose, again, it's, a, you know, just in terms of the wine, well, first of all, I mean, you know, drinking as much, drinking culture is a is a big thing here, you know, for these nobles. So, you know, the ability to drink lots uh, as well. But I should say alcohol goes through all levels of society. And that way people drink enormous amounts of beer, you know, as well from a very young age. Right. too. Because in, certainly if you live in town, you can't really drink the water supply. So you have to drink beer in that way. And the nobles, what they'll do, and particularly the French ones, will drink wine because that's a, a noble drink. Beer's a commoner's drink uh, in that way. So they'll drink vast amounts of wine. But I should say people are paid in wine as well. So if you're a uh, member, we talked about the court earlier. So let's say I'm at John II's court and I'm a member, I will have an alliance of so much wine. And it could be a large amount of wine, half a gallon, a gallon of wine a day. At this point, Neil is starting to show my own ignorance. Yes, maybe I found this long-lost king. I think that's pretty cool. But what I'm doing is attempting to wrap modern-day logic to medieval logic. There's a different value system, different priorities, different customs. And so for me to attempt to see if John II is the worst king is short-sighted. The Middle Ages are called the Dark Ages for many reasons, but... One is that the value system is different than we are accustomed to today, and unlike the Roman Empire beforehand or the Renaissance that came after. Neil reminds me... Again, I think it goes back to this, it's just a different world, this idea of monarchy then. You know, this is someone who is appointed by God to rule them. This is a divinely ordained sort of system in a way. 
And we do have challenges to kingship. We do have you know, people complaining about it, but not in the same way that what we might expect today. So whenever people are complaining about John, what people generally complain about are the king's advisors. And this happens all the time. Kings throughout medieval Europe, if you're a king's advisor, it's quite a risky situation because if something goes wrong, people could start attacking and kill you. you. Mm. And this happens quite regularly throughout the Middle Ages. We've got lots of nasty things happen to king's advisors when people start turning on them. This got me thinking about the Middle Ages in a more general sense and what we've come to call these quote-unquote dark ages, this time in history that I knew so little of and what brought me to John II in the first place. At this point, I began reading and researching more on the Middle Ages, not just the Hundred Years' War or the Black Prince. One book in particular caught my attention. Written by Michael Pye, titled The Edge of the World, A Cultural History of the North Sea and the Transformation of Europe, the New York Times' notable book selection focuses on the Dark Ages and in particular the area around the North Sea. What do you think is the perception for most people of the Middle Ages, and what have you found it to be in reality? I think a lot of people think of the the Middle Ages as being painted people, don't they? I mean, the Middle Ages exist in the margins of beautiful books of ours, and they are very lovely, uh, but they are essentially flat and still images. They're not Mm. not actually people moving. When I'm talking about your uh, your book what what specifically would you say the time the time frame is that you cover here well the time frame is roughly 600 AD to roughly 1600 uh, it, it, it's 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 the period that people always do talk about as the dark ages or the middle ages and which a lot of scholars have begun to start calling well actually no it's not the dark ages it's the morning of the modern world it's the beginnings of things. And that's the period that I wanted to deal with, in part because, as a matter of fact, I didn't know enough about it. I didn't know anything. I mean, I, I was trained as a historian, yes, and I did the right degrees and all the rest of it. But um, medieval stuff? Really, no. And Dark Ages stuff? No, completely mysterious. Hmm. You know, there are a few people that loom up out of the fog, like Charlemagne and so on, and you're vaguely aware of them and how important they were. But what actually happened, what people's lives were, that seemed to me to be almost completely missing. And we've got much, much better at recovering that for, for example, the 16th or 17th centuries. We can go to court records, we can go to the census material, we can go to all of the detailed records that were kept, and we can try to work out how people lived and why they wanted to live that way. But for medieval period, that didn't really seem to have been done very much. And it seemed to me to be a really interesting thing to do. After all, it was a thousand years we could steal back. In other words, some may say now more than ever, it's an it's a interesting time to be a historian. It's a fascinating time yeah. to be a historian. Apart from anything else, everybody is worrying about, are they not fake news and everything that that might imply? Mm. And just the basic thing that you can't assume that everybody telling you something, even with enormous authority, even on a podcast, um, and even on CBS, you know, I mean, you, you can't assume that everything is entirely straightforward. Yeah. You need to be critical. And that's precisely what a historian ought to be doing. 
Now, this is where my interview with Michael becomes not so much an interview as, well, a presentation. The following is unedited. I tell you what changes things, what changes history. We lose history. We had one wonderful example in, in Domburg on the Dutch coast, which is now a nice seaside place, and you can get ice creams and you can play golf. In the 17th century, on one day, all of a sudden the tides changed. They went out further than usual, and the wind changed, and the dunes changed shape, and the sand and the water was just in different places. And all of a sudden, on that beach, there was a Roman temple, there was the remains of a Roman port, there was a whole story of where the Romans had been and what they'd done. And a story that the Romans actually never bothered to write down because the Romans were surprisingly provincial. I mean, they wrote about Rome, yes, they knew about Rome, and they knew about anywhere that sent a great deal of money to Rome, but they didn't know about Domburg. And what happened after that was in a way almost more extraordinary. It was almost more extraordinary. The tide came in and went out again and went in again. And the winds changed and the dunes changed. And all sorts of other stories kept coming back. Suddenly there was a graveyard with all the bodies with their heads together in a circle. Suddenly there was a line of what looked like they'd once been wooden warehouses along the edge of the water. All of these things had gone, and all of them represented different stories about that place. And yet all that we really knew about that place in the so-called Dark Ages was that there had been a rather nasty Viking raid, and a lot of women and a lot of money had been taken off, and that a saint had come doing missionary work and had been hit on the head rather abruptly. And being a saint, of course, he miraculously survived. The poor man who hit him on the head, unfortunately, didn't, but then you don't if you run up against saints. And what we have <laughs> is something quite extraordinary. We have story after story that never got written down because nobody wanted to write it down. You know, it didn't prove that a, a cathedral owned a bit of land or a lord had particular rights. It didn't prove anything like that. And it was a story that was immensely complicated because it was one story after another. It was all the rich textures of one story after another. Now, that came back only because the sea happened to move in a particular way. The sand shifted, the tides shifted, and miraculously because of that, suddenly we could see something that you wouldn't expect. All of a sudden, the Dark Ages were not the kind of things you get in the, the annals of cathedrals or monasteries, who write down all the times they were really offended, and all the times they were assaulted, and all the times they were burnt down. No, it isn't that at all. If, in fact, if there's an archaeology done around Domburg, you can't actually find the bodies from all of these supposed battles, and you can't find the burnt ground from all the times that the place is supposed to have been put to the flame. Now, what you have is people's lives, people's continuous lives. You have the trade that went in and out through a Roman port, then later through a port which might have been Frisian or might have been something else. Later, a Viking settlement but a settlement actually to stay there and to form families and households. And you have a story of the way people lived, not just the way people died. And what fascinates me is that if we try to tell the story 
of the Middle Ages as the story of the times when people lived, and not just the times when people died horribly. All of a sudden we have something that is infinitely richer than we might expect, and completely unexpected. It's, the, the wonderful thing about it is that it, it throws everything in the air. What it means is that all of the things that we think of as being, I don't know, um, somehow they, they start late, they start about the Renaissance, all of the things that we think start then actually start so much earlier. People had lives. Wow. That, that was epic. I've never, I don't, we've interviewed a lot of people. I've, that was <laughs> right off the bat. Shit, that was something else. <laughs> you should see me sitting here. This epic monologue by Michael was from the beginning of our interview. And the following is a response he had to one comment I had left. I was going to bring up that quote, you know, um, which I thought was so true. And I always just, you, you write, for national history has a way of being radically incomplete. And uh, I always thought in America, it's kind of funny because you're reading, not funny, but you're reading in grade school a textbook and you'll never finish a chapter uh, in an American school where it ends and you think, huh, it feels like America did the wrong thing there. It's like even in Vietnam, you know, it kind of just sort of quickly ends and we move on to the next thing. Well, yes, yes. British imperial history used to be wonderfully innocent. You mm. know? We rushed out into the world in order to save you all, in order to help you. I mean, occasionally you were ungrateful and beastly, but I mean, that, that, that's really not our fault. No, I mean, the, the school history is a nonsense. The reason I included so much of Michael's interview is simple. He beautifully outlines and explains in a way this humble narrator could not how the Middle Ages is a time period that we may have all wrong and a time period that has been kind of lost in history. Michael's excited because, as he so brilliantly put it, it's a time period that is a thousand years of life which we can steal back which historians can bring to life. I think John II personifies the misconceptions of the Middle Ages. He's a lost and misunderstood king who ruled and didn't rule during a misunderstood time. Don't get me wrong, the Middle Ages was a brutal and dark period in many regards, but it's complicated. So with that, my attempts at trying to bring to life John II comes closer to a conclusion. And just as I started this podcast, I attempt to end John II's story by first understanding what happened in the end to the Black Prince. BP never becomes what the good was for much of his life, a king. The Black Prince dies even before his father, Edward III. At war for much of his life, the Black Prince is very sick in his final years. Maybe there have been several books on the Black Prince because there is something heroic or romantic, certainly bittersweet, about a prince who fights his whole life for his country, showcasing all of the reasons he earns the right to be the next king, only to die before given the opportunity. In one of BP's very last battles, he fights against none other than Louis I, one of King John the Good's sons. In fact, the same son that was held captive as ransom before he escaped back to France, believing it was his duty to fight. Again, perhaps Shakespeare came up with the Black Prince's name, but couldn't write this story. 
it's too damn rich. So my opinion, to answer the three questions I set out to answer in the beginning, was John II the worst king of all time? He definitely wasn't a good king. I don't know how you could do much worse when your main job is to defend your country. I guess he wasn't a Manchurian president or king, so that's good. But losing to your biggest rival when you had just as much information and twice the amount of troops isn't really a sign of greatness. Regardless of Neil's awesome book, which, and I should say he didn't ask me to say this, but you can get on Amazon, it's hard for me to consider John II particularly effective. John the Good didn't go back to England because his country was in shambles, as I first suspected. It wasn't the easy way out. This was not like he got a get-out-of-jail-free card for all of his problems, and that card was literally going back to jail. Honor was everything during these times. And the honorable, the right thing to do if you are a good king was to return to England. With that said, it's important to note the good did know England would treat him well. Additionally, the good's nobles in France, his political team, if you will, were untrustworthy. There were lots of Paul Manaforts, Kellyanne Conways, Amorosas. The good had trouble knowing who was loyal and who was perfectly fine with stabbing him in the back. My second question, which I won't caveat the crap out of, is John II lost in history? I find this question far more pertinent and interesting, and my answer, yes, he most certainly has been lost in history. Perhaps he's been lost in history because while the British enjoyed him as a prisoner, they aren't proud of him, he isn't one of them, and the French, while John II was indeed their king, aren't particularly proud of him either. Why would they be? My third and final question. The question I first said was more lighthearted, actually ends up explaining what really happened. Why was John II of France called John the Good? He is a bad king. He was called John the Good because he was a patron of the arts. He was well-read. Oh, he, right. he was a patron of music. In other words, it was, um, it was praise for his courtly behavior. So he was a he was a man who carried who even carried kind of improvement books around in his war chest when he was on campaign. What does that mean, improvement books? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm being a bit mischievous, but he kind of battles had, for dummies. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he'd read that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Sadly, yeah. Uh, we. He was de devotional, so he had books on chivalry, he had devotional texts, and he carried these around. But he doesn't actually read these books and learn anything. I think we should think of another name for John the Good, because he really is defined by loss and losing. He lost nearly everything in his life. He lost his army, he lost in battle, he lost his wife, he lost his other wife, he lost his son in England, he lost his country, and he has been lost in history. The good was also in bad health for most of his life. While history has recorded just how bad of a king he was, it seems that much of his actions were lost in translation, until Neil showed up. Instead of John the Good, maybe he's really John the Lost. But if there's more research, John the Good's narrative will continue to evolve. In fact, it's already happening. Peter Hoskins the former British Royal Air Force pilot and the author who walked the same steps that the Black Prince did, recently left me a voicemail. 
that made all of this worthwhile. Hi, Andrew. It's uh, Peter Hoskins. I just thought I'd get back to you because of something that's sort of come out of uh, our discussion for your podcast on uh, John II, John Le Bon. Um, you set me to thinking, um, as you said, there's precious little about him. There are a couple of French biographies, but I'm not for sure of anything in, uh, in English. Um, anyway, the, the long and the short of it is I've made a proposal um, to my publisher for a book comparing the generalship and leadership of the Black Prince and uh, John II, and the proposal's been accepted. So thanks for uh, giving me the germ of the idea, and uh, stay in touch, and I look forward to hearing the podcast in due course. Peter, bye. Hoskins' new book very well may be the first book that will tell the story of John II, not just for academia, but for the masses. As it turns out, this episode isn't as much about whether King John II is the worst king of all time or if his name is accurate as it is a story about historians. A story about Peter Hoskins, who wanted to go on a journey in France, began talking to locals, and ended up not just writing a book on the Black Prince, but literally retraced the prince's steps. It's about Michael Jones, who, after reading recent literature about the Black Prince, felt BP's image was being tarnished and required another angle. It's about David Green, who helped me access the National Archives in London to sort out just how much that three million ransom was worth, and emailing me late in the night saying it could pay the wages of a skilled craftsman for 68,493 years. It's about Neil Murphy, who decided to study John the Good and determined he must write a book that would show a more balanced legacy, even if it put Neil in tremendous debt. It's also about Michael Pye, who felt the narrative of the Dark Ages isn't entirely fair and studied not just the Middle Ages, but the Middle Ages in the North Sea, a time and area of the world most have long forgotten. It's also about the humble historians that emailed or called me back and said while they were experts in medieval history, they felt there were others that could do a better job if I were really focusing on John II and the Hundred Years' War. And speaking of things getting lost in translation or confused, Turns out the 100 years war was actually 116 years. This is how history is meant to work. A system of checks and balances. Never straying from the facts, but realizing that facts are more and more available every day to those who are really looking, to those who are patient. And when you take this approach, you may not reach the totality of the picture, that's impossible, but you get that much closer to at least an idea of what really happened. So once again, I honestly couldn't be happier with one of our bigger sponsors this year, which is Sleep Number. They have the best beds in the world. They are smart. They sense your every move and automatically adjust to you, keeping you sleeping comfortably throughout the night. Come in during the fall sale and save $100 on the Queen Sleep Number 360 C2 Smart Bed, now only $899. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 550 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Visit, this is the key, visit sleepnumber.com slash podcast to find the one nearest you. Next week on What Really Happened, Dave Chappelle had the most beloved comedy show on the planet. But while filming season three, Chappelle quit, leaving behind a $50 million paycheck. Speculation was rampant. Where did Dave go? A mental institution? South Africa? Was it a drug addiction? 
These days, Chappelle lives in a small town where he grew up. He sometimes attends the local town hall, where everyone knows him not because he's famous, but because he's one of them. It's now been nearly 15 years since his infamous departure. What really happened? <laughs> 